0: Please open your Bible with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4. As you are turning there, you may remember over the last few weeks that the apostles Peter and John were, uh, by God's grace, they performed a miracle healing a man who was unable to walk for more than forty years since he was born. A massive crowd gathers and they begin to preach the gospel. And if you'll remember, the crowd not only is attracted to the gospel, but at the same time, the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, Sadducees, high priest, are jealous. And so they bring the apostles in to speak to the Sanhedrin and to give an account of what happened. And they threaten them not to speak or teach any more in the name of Jesus. So I want to just kind of remind ourselves of what we just saw last week and I'll read today's passage as well. We will start here in verse 11 of chapter 4. So this is as Peter and John are giving their defense to the Jewish leadership and we will read all the way down to verse 31. And this again is the word of the Lord Acts 4:11. Peter speaking. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did, the nation, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed, His Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever Your hand and Your plan had predestined to take place. And now look, Lord, upon their threats, and grant to Your servants to continue to speak Your Word with all boldness, while You stretch out Your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of Your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now, just before we really get into today's sermon, one of the primary themes of this passage and, and of this prayer is the sovereignty of God. And since we gave out at least 40 copies of this book, I don't know, some of you, raise your hand if you remember this Grudem book. Did anybody get this copy maybe last year? So, if you have this somewhere in your house, uh, I highly recommend, and we did have a Sunday school on this, I think, before COVID struck, but uh, if you turn to chapter 8, if you have a copy of this book, it's on God's providence. And over Thanksgiving break, if you would like to sit down and refresh, it really is a tremendous chapter. And so, uh, Wayne Grudem lays out all the primary issues on this difficult topic, and he says what the Bible does say and what the Bible doesn't say and what different people have said in church history, and he does a really fine job of explaining the whole topic. So, I recommend highly reading the the Providence chapter in there if you have a chance over the break. But today we're going to focus in on several aspects of God's sovereignty. So, let me just kind of get, get get our mindset here with Peter and John. You've been taken before the highest ruling body of Jewish people in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, and they have threatened you, and they have said, stop talking about Jesus. Be quiet about Jesus. Do not preach anymore in the name of Jesus. You can talk about God. You can talk about all the kinds of stuff we do around the temple, but don't talk anymore about Jesus. Why? Because their reputation was tied with Jesus' fate, because they were the group, particularly, that had Jesus crucified just a couple months earlier. And because of jealousy and because of embarrassment and all these other issues, they do not want to hear anything else about the name of Jesus. Now, Peter and John, do you remember Peter on the night of the betrayal of Jesus? We've talked about this many times. He was no courageous person. Now, he thought he was courageous. Peter thought he was a lot of things. Let's be honest, it was Peter… But Peter said, listen, Lord, if everybody else denies you tonight, I will never deny you. If we got to go down swinging swords, I've got my sword ready to go. If, if you are crucified, I'll be crucified right alongside you. And, and he's a, obviously, he was not intimidated at all by either of the fact that Jesus told him that he was going to deny him that night, and he also quoted the Old Testament prophet of Zechariah, that the sheep would be scattered when the shepherd was struck. And Peter says, I don't really care what the Old Testament says or what Jesus says, I'm going to stick with you, Jesus. Thanks, Peter. So, Peter then is ready to go in the garden. He's got that sword out, and he's ready to lop off a head, and then before long, he is denying Jesus. He is cowardly. He's afraid. And when Jesus is being crucified, Peter is nowhere to be found because he is off weeping bitterly over his own sin and betrayal. So, here's what I want to say. The boldness that's being talked about in this chapter, mentioned in verses 13 and 29 and 31, this boldness that keeps being repeated in this chapter is not, and hear me clearly, it is not a personality trait. Nobody naturally has this boldness. Some people might have a more direct personality. Some people might have a more indirect personality. Some people might be less afraid to speak exactly what they think. Others might, you know, kind of beat around the bush and be less direct. But the boldness here is boldness given by the Holy Spirit of God, and it is not a natural personality trait. Uh, Peter was a person who spoke pretty directly, but he often was lacking this characteristic. And here's what's interesting. The very Peter, who was a coward on the night of Christ's betrayal, is now bold as a lion on th- in this particular moment, and the difference was not a personality transformation. It was a Holy Spirit in a transaction where the Holy Spirit worked within him this boldness. And here's another thing I want to point out. This boldness is not something that you get and then you've got. Do you know what I mean? It's not something that you just have a one-time moment where you pray for boldness, and the Lord gives it to you, and then you're set for life. I'm just going to be bold all the time for Jesus. That's not how this works. We need a continual filling of the Spirit for boldness. In fact, you can see here, the same people who were filled with the Spirit in Acts 2, the same people who were filled with the Spirit later in Acts are again filled with the Spirit. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. So, we need to be continually on our knees asking the Lord to fill us with His Spirit so that we can have this boldness. Because I don't know about you, I'm I'm going to both give a compliment and a criticism to all of us, if you're a believer. Haven't there been moments in your life, maybe even in the last few months, where you have been more bold for Jesus than you thought you would naturally be? There's been a moment where in a conversation, you just sort of, you graciously but clearly spoke truth, and you brought up things of God, things of Christ, and you brought up the gospel in a conversation, and there was a kind of unnatural boldness that you expressed. Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but maybe in the last few months you had a moment like that. Maybe at work, maybe wherever, maybe on a Zoom call, that's what we're doing these days, right? So you're on Zoom, and you maybe bring something up, you have a conversation that is, is, it takes some courage. You might be looked at a little funny. And then, something I'm sadly maybe more familiar with, we've had times where we have an opportunity to say something. I mean, just like the door opens up, like the door on the side of a giant warehouse door, like a huge opportunity to say something. I'm like, I could say something right now. I've even got the sentence. It would be perfect. And then the door closes, and then you move on, and you never say it. Anybody can identify maybe with that. So there are probably times where you have had this boldness, and there are probably times where you have lacked this boldness. But here's what we learn: this is not a boldness you get once and you keep for life. This is a boldness we must fight for. Just like Scott was sharing, we we need to be sowing to the spirit in order to maintain this boldness for the Lord. That is both gracious and courageous, and if we are sowing to the flesh, we will find ourselves less bold. And in my experience, when I'm walking in the flesh, I'm either direct about what I believe, but in a very harsh and ungracious and unloving way. I just want to kind of score a point in a debate. That's one side, which is more fleshly. Or the other side is I just don't say anything at all. And in order to have love motivating my boldness... I must be continually seeking God's help to fill me with His Spirit and for us to be filled with His Spirit. So, that's sort of the big picture, and now we're going to zoom in here on some of the specifics that are happening, and we're going to look at the longest prayer in the book of Acts, and uh, it's verses 24 to 30… excuse me, 24 to 30 and uh, we will look at this in some detail. So, start with me here back in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, that's very natural. They're threatened from the legal, uh, for the leaders who could put them in jail, who had put them in jail, who could potentially have them crucified if they were to bring this before the Roman leaders, who in a few chapters will have Stephen, a Christian, killed for his boldness, they go back and they report to all their friends, their fellow believers, what was said to them by the chief priests. And here's what they said. The ruling elites, the religious elites, remember from last week, the political elites, the academic elites of our city have told us, they've warned us. Don't talk any more about Jesus. Now listen, we know that we must obey God rather than man at this point. In a future sermon, we'll talk about obeying governing authorities. that'll come in later in chapter five. but for, for right now, if the government asks you to disobey God, you cannot obey the government. Uh, if the government asks you to do something that is forbidden in Scripture or commands you to do something that is not allowed in Scripture, whatever it may be, we must obey God rather than man. And so, the disciples come back and say, listen, we are under threat of further punishment. It could be any of us. It could be all of us. And listen, lest we dehumanize these people. Remember in the Gospels, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever in Mark chapter 1. You know what that means? That means Peter was married, right? He has a mother-in-law. So, Peter's married. Um, Yeah, important factor there. Uh, He's married. We don't know if he had children, but the assumption would be very likely he would have had children. Don't dehumanize these people as if they just kind of floated six inches above the earth. Very likely, uh, we know a lot of the apostles Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 9 were married. Uh, they would have had children in all likelihood. They would have had family members in the area, extended family members in the area. When they are facing jail time and possible execution, they are dealing with the fact… With These are the questions. What's going to happen to my young children? What's going to happen to my wife? Or if it's a woman, what's going to happen with my husband? What's going to happen with my children? What's going to happen to this or that? There were many factors that could make you obviously worry and be afraid and to not trust the Lord and to be a coward and to say, I don't have to say this. I don't really, we don't need to go out of our way to say this. Maybe we'll just kind of, we'll, we'll be a little less clear. We won't speak up quite as often. We'll kind of avoid getting in any serious trouble. We don't want to kind of, you know, make anything too big of a, we don't want to make too big of a scene here. There were lots of concerns on their minds, just like we would have. And so they go to their friends, and they share with them what had happened. Again, let me reread verse 23. When they were released, this is from that night in prison, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, that is the whole group, they lifted their voices together to God. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Their first response to hearing that jail time and possible future punishment, including death, awaits them, their first response is to pray. Now, let's just be honest here. I, I talk about prayer, at least I've mentioned it several times recently. It's in the text, and because I, I struggle with my prayer life, I, you may share that with me. But I love the fact that when they're facing this massive trial, their first response in unison is that they lift their voices together to God. So often, we try to fix our problems by our own ingenuity, creativity, our cleverness. We're going to make a plan, we're going to fix this, we're going to figure this thing out, we're going to make this thing work, and there's a place to be wise. There's a place to think carefully. There's a place to plan things out. But how often do we turn to the One who can truly help us? Just just personal testimony here. When I am preparing a sermon, this is a temptation I face, not sometimes, I think I face it every single week, and I even felt it today, and that's why I'm talking about it right now. I have this weird feeling when I'm preparing a sermon that if I just read the text one more time read another commentary, think through it again, look at it more carefully, read something else, read again, read again, I can just sort of figure it out, and I can make the sermon work. And there's this weird part of me that just thinks, I can do this. I can read enough. I can think enough. I can put this thing together. I can craft the sermon. I can make the sermon happen. And yet, (laughs) time and time again, God shows me that it is only through His enabling that the sermon can do any good at all. And so, my, my temptation is to try to kind of make this thing work and to not have that instinct to pause, close the Bible for a moment, and to pour out my heart before the Lord and say, Lord, I need Your enabling strength. I need Your power because, of course, I am helpless to do any good to anyone in this room. Obviously. I cannot… Listen, we've got 10,000 issues, do we not, in this life? We've got all kinds of problems sin problems, relational problems, cowardice issues, all kinds of temptations, the thought that I can say some sort of thing that's just going to help you out is a joke if God, the Holy Spirit, is not working through the text to free our hearts from captivity to sin and to free us for holiness to God. And yet, so often in my preparation, I show that I don't actually believe that. So often in my preparation, I'm trying to rely on my own ability to do something when in the end, that is impossible. I must rely on what God alone can do. So, the, the believers here, they hear how severe the situation is, and what do they do? They lift their voices together to God, and look at this prayer, verse 24, middle of the verse, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, pause here, and I'll just give you four points that I want to use for the prayer, and uh, just kind of in the order of the prayer, four points. Number one, God is sovereign over creation. Number two, God is sovereign over Scripture. Number three, God is sovereign over suffering, persecution, and evil. And number four, God is sovereign over sanctification. Now, I hope you will see that I'm getting these directly from today's passage. So, sovereign over creation, sovereign over Scripture, sovereign over suffering and persecution and evil, and sovereign over sanctification. And I thought a good bit about why they pray the way they do here. I would, just being honest with you, you're facing jail and persecution and execution, right? You start your prayer this way. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them. I mean, it's not immediately obvious why you would start your prayer about being possibly killed for your faith with creation. Like, who? they're about to put you in jail, and you start with a Genesis 1 prayer? Like, what's going on there? Well, they are… This whole prayer is emphasizing God is in control. He is sovereign. He is supreme. And so they say, listen, let's start with the basics. Why are we afraid of the Sanhedrin? God breathed the universe into existence. Every member of the Sanhedrin was created by God in God's image, and He's sovereign over all the world that He has made. He's sovereign over the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Maybe you uh, have have an interest in, in space or NASA and things of that nature, I, I kind of do, there's a part of me, you know, I, I, I enjoy these things. So may, maybe you've been on the, the website with NASA with their Hubble telescope images, those famous images that have been out for, uh, I guess, more than 30 or 40 years now, uh, Hubble's been sending in these images, and I recommend going on the website and just scrolling through the images that Hubble has sent us of the stars within our solar system, but then also the other galaxies beyond ours and read about them. Learn a little bit about them. There's just one little interesting thing that you may have heard of. There was a period uh, a number of years ago, I believe this is in the 90s, around 2000, where they were wanting to see what's really out there. And so they picked a part of the night sky that had no visible light coming whatsoever. They picked this… I mean, imagine if you held a straw out in your hand, like a little straw, and you were looking through the straw about out here looking at the sky. You're dealing with a teeny, teeny, teeny slice of the pie. And they zoomed in on this spot in the sky that, as far as they could tell, was complete blackness. And they actually were wondering if this was going to be a waste of time and money because it was going to take, uh, I think it was like 140 hours of Hubble telescope time to try to take a careful image of this little tiny location in the sky. So they zoomed in, wondering if they were wasting their time. They are going to get a black image back at the end of the day. And after 140 hours, I believe it was... The image comes back, and it's become a famous image. Because in this tiny, tiny, tiny little spot in the dark sky, the image that came back contained over 3,000 specks of light, 3,000 in a a spot of otherwise complete darkness. And what they found was almost every single speck was a galaxy that had never before been seen before, 3,000 in this tiny little spot. And they did the calculations and to figure out how many galaxies. Well, then about 10 years, 15 years went by, and they did another one. Uh, and they, this time they had a better camera. They had, they had put a new camera inside Hubble, a, a higher quality camera, and they, did, they found another spot in the night sky, and they found another pitch black spot, it was another part of the spa- space, and they zoomed in, and they took an image, and you can Google it and find it. It's a pretty breathtaking thing. In this one they found, I think it was 9,000 galaxies in this tiny little spot of blackness. Now, I'm not going to do a science. I'm not going we're not going to go on, on this for a long time, but just for a second. So, our solar system, you know, with our planets circling our star, the sun, uh, is pretty big. It's pretty big. When you go beyond our solar system, we are living in a galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, which is about 100,000 light years across. 100,000 light years across. So, if you're going over 5, I think it's trillion. I'm going to get the number wrong i won 't even guess right now the light year is a long ways, and if you if you go one hundred thousand light years uh, that 's how you get from one side of our galaxy to the other, and then we discover that there are tens of billions of similar galaxies out there, many of whom have never been seen before until in the last few years, and some of whom, no doubt, we will never probably be able to see because of our vantage point. And there are hundreds of billions of stars in each of these galaxies, and these are absolutely astonishing in their size. There's a, a YouTube video that came out a few years ago, which uh, they, they took close-up images of the nearest galaxy, Andromeda galaxy, which I think you can actually see in the night sky with your own eye, barely, and they took an incredibly high-quality image. I mean, it's, things, it's one of the largest images ever, I think, constructed. It's just, They put together tons of individual pictures, and the YouTube video takes this one huge image, and it zooms in, it seems like forever, up until you can see all these stars like sand just scattered across the beach, and it moves. Moves across Andromeda and pulls out and then zooms out and shows you what a tiny little speck it is in our night sky. Now, why am I telling you this? Because when you and I face trials in life and we go to pray, we are talking to the One who made all that we see, all that we've ever discovered and far beyond that, the Maker of heaven and earth, you can have a time of prayer and fellowship with. When you are in trouble, you're talking to the one who breathed the stars into existence and we're told in the Scriptures, calls each one by name. That's who we're dealing with. So you must start with creation because God is sovereign over the world. Of course He is. He made all of it. He owns all of it. It is His, and He's working every molecule in this universe for the good of His own people. And so, what is there to be afraid of when the maker of the moon and the sun and the planets and all the stars and galaxies is your heavenly Father? You say, I'm running out of strength. I can't do this anymore. Life is hard. Let me tell you something. You're right. You can't do this anymore. But the God of all strength and power can renew your strength. So, go to Him go to Him exhausted, go to Him weary, go to Him in tears, go to Him when you can't live out another day of your life because of stress or anxiety or depression or discouragement or loneliness or darkness, and pour out your heart before the God of heaven. And the God of heaven does not sleep or slumber, He has not forgotten about you and your suffering, and even the smallest details of your life, He keeps up with no less than the greatest galaxies in our universe go to him so number 1 he is sovereign over creation number 2 verse 25 and 26 so the sovereign lord who verse 25 who through the mouth of our father david your servant said by the holy spirit why do the gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the lord and against His anointed. Look carefully at verse 25. Let me read this first part again. So the Sovereign Lord, verse 25, who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, by the Holy Spirit, ladies and gentlemen, that is a mouthful right there. So the Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of David, said, by the Holy Spirit. It's a lot going on there. Okay? So, so, get this. When the Old Testament speaks, God the Father is speaking through the human author by the Holy Spirit. You hear that? God the Father is speaking through the pen of the biblical writer, whoever he may be, Moses, David, whoever, Isaiah, Jeremiah. God is speaking through the human author's pen by the Holy Spirit. So that the words of Scripture are the very words of God. The God who, again, is holding the universe together right now, in Him all things hold together, right? In Him all things consist. He upholds all things by the word of His power. That God, He speaks presently right now through Scripture by the Spirit. So God is sovereign over what Scripture has written. It is His Word, every bit of it. Now, number three, and this is the one we may spend the most time on, sovereign over suffering, persecution, and evil. What does that mean? God is sovereign over suffering, persecution, and evil. Well, let's let's look here at verses 27 and 28. These two verses pack quite a punch here. A lot of theology going on in 27 and 28. For truly in this city, that's Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. He mentions four groups or individuals. Number one, both Herod and number two, Pontius Pilate, along with number three, the Gentiles, and number four, the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place." Now, first, this may, I, may, I may lose you here because I don't know how to explain this easily, but do you see how those four entities mentioned in verse 27 correspond with Psalm, the psalm that was quoted in verse 25 and 26? So, see if you can follow me here. Herod is mentioned in verse 27. Herod was a what? He was a, starts with a K, king, and do you see the kings mentioned in verse 26? The kings of the earth, that corresponds to Herod. Okay, next is Pontius Pilate. He was a ruler. Right? So Pilate corresponds with the ruler in verse 26. Next, you have the Gentiles. This is the easy one. It corresponds with Gentiles. That, one, that was really easy. Gentiles <laughs> corresponds with Gentiles. That'd be the Roman soldiers. And finally, the peoples of Israel correspond to the peoples who plot against the Lord. So, do you see how the four groups mentioned in Psalm 2 are the four groups mentioned in Jerusalem at the time of Christ? Okay, the king would be Herod, the ruler would be Pontius Pilate. The peoples would be Israel, the Gentiles would be the Gentiles. And here they see Psalm 2 being fulfilled most clearly in what just happened through Jesus. Okay, so what does Herod do to Jesus? Luke is the only gospel author that I can remember mentioning Herod. Uh, He says that uh, Herod was in Jerusalem for the feast, Passover, and so Pilate trying to get Jesus off of his, uh, you know, he didn't want to have to deal with Jesus, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. And it says, Herod, in Luke's gospel, Herod held Jesus in contempt and mocked Him, put the purple robe on Him. And uh, we're told that uh, Herod basically wanted Jesus to do a magic trick. You know, give us one of, your, one of your miracles. Let's see you do something fancy. And Jesus didn't do anything, and He didn't say anything, so Herod put Him in contempt and mocked Him and sent Him back to Pilate. All right, number two. Pontius Pilate. Well, Pontius Pilate clearly was in an awkward position. He did not want Jesus to have to die because he knew he was innocent. But Pilate knew that if he had Jesus set free, the crowd would try to kill him or would turn against him. So, to save his own political career which he later destroyed for other reasons, to save temporarily his own political career, he had an innocent man knowingly killed, which was Jesus Himself. That was a horribly evil deed, and washing His hands with water did not wash away the stain of His sin. Number three, the Gentiles, what did they do? The Roman soldiers are the ones who mocked Him. They clothed Him in that robe. They struck Him in the head with a reed, which is like a a, a thick wooden cane. And they said, prophesy, who struck you? As they blindfolded Him and struck Him in the face, they spit on Him. They whipped Him. They nailed Him to a cross. They hoisted Him up in the air. And then later, after nailing Him to the cross and watching Him die and gambling over His clothing, they then pierced His side with a spear until blood and water poured out. That is reprehensible and evil, what the Gentile soldiers did to Jesus. And finally, number four. The peoples of Israel. I'm in verse 27. The peoples of Israel. They are the ones for whom the Messiah was sent originally. Romans 9, Paul says, from their own race, their own ethnicity was the Christ. And yet they, at least the majority, cried out, Give us Barabbas. And Pilate said, What should we do to Jesus? And they said, Let him be crucified, crucify, crucify him. These right here being described, are the worst sins that ever happened in the history of the world. I think this is worse than Adam and Eve's sin. I mean, the murder of Jesus, I think is the worst thing that ever happened in history. And these are the four groups that played into that. And here's the shocking verse, verse 28. So, he mentions all of that, Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, Israel, what did they do? Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. When I say God is sovereign over suffering, persecution, and evil, I am getting that straight out of this verse. They did. I mean, we're talking about the worst thing that ever happened. They did whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. Now, this is not the first time this has been mentioned in the book of Acts. In fact, every chapter so far has had these themes in it. So, just quickly, I won't spend a long time reviewing this. Look at chapter 1, chapter 1, and just read a couple verses here. We'll start with Judas' betrayal. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. Peter says, brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning who? Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So here Peter is not letting Judas off the hook, but Peter says uh, what Judas did, it had to be fulfilled because God had written about this in the Old Testament. It was planned by God in the Old Testament and scripted ahead of time, and yet Judas was accountable for all that he had done, a high view of God's sovereignty over evil. Now look at chapter 2, verse 23. Greg Rentz talked about this during his sermon a few weeks ago, 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, there it is again. God planned the death of Jesus, and yet they carried it out by the hands of lawless men. So, you have, again, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Look at chapter 3. Again, it comes up. Look at 3 verses 14 and 15. This is the human responsibility aspect, 3.14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. So very clearly, they did it. It was was a choice that they made. But look at verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Now, do you see it again? They made a choice to crucify Jesus, and it was the worst thing that ever happened, and yet… This was pre-planned by God, and it was prophesied centuries in advance, and it must be fulfilled exactly as God had predicted. Now again, chapter 4. Let me read it one more time, verses 27 and 28. "'For truly in this city there were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, here, here is um, something really, I think, significant to talk about here. First of all, people often say that the doctrine of predestination, you know, people will ask, do you believe in the doctrine of predestination? You know, maybe you could ask this. I've been asked these kinds of questions a lot. Do you believe in the doctrine of predestination? And my answer is, well, I didn't make the word up. Now, the word does come from the New Testament, okay, numerous times, and here is one of them. So, yes, if you're a Christian and you believe in the Bible, you, you, you've got to believe in the doctrine of predestination because it, it's a word that comes from the Bible itself. Number two, people will ask, well, if it is true that God has predestined events that come to pass, in fact, all events that come to pass, that He's sovereign over all of human history, including these horrific moments like the death of Jesus, Does that mean that we are not responsible or that we should not be doing evangelism? Like, if God is predestining what happens, then why should I even bother sharing my faith? Now, the funny thing about that is, what's this prayer about? It's about boldness for evangelism. What doctrine are they using to become bold for evangelism? The doctrine of predestination. So, it is not believing that God is sovereign over human history does not hurt evangelism, it's the motivation. This whole prayer is about evangelism, and it's all about God's sovereignty. It's saying, God, You control everything. You even control us. Please give us the boldness to carry out this mission. So, evangelism and sovereignty of God go hand in hand in this prayer. They are not enemies, they are friends. The one helps encourage us to do the other. The fact that God is sovereign is the reason why we pray. I I do like to ask people, you know, if you believe God is totally sovereign, why do you pray? I want to say back, if you don't believe God is totally sovereign, why do you pray? Why would you ask the God who can't do things to do things He can't do? The reason why you pray is because God actually can do things. And so God, who is the sovereign one, actually can give us boldness. That's why we ask Him for it. If it was ultimately something that we could just sort of whip up on our own, then you'd pray to yourself for boldness. Right, but we ask God for it because God is the one who is ultimately going to be the one who gives that to us. Now, turn with me just for a moment in your Bible to the right to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. And I just want to spend a few minutes on a familiar passage that deals again with this topic. And it, the word predestined is used twice in this paragraph in this little section. So I thought it would be a good place to look just for a moment. As you are turning there, I just want to read a brief uh, statement from the Heidelberg Catechism from, what, 400 years ago. It's a great short summary of what we call the providence of God or God's sovereignty over the world. Beautifully written, here is what the Heidelberg Catechism says from several hundred years ago. What do you understand by the providence of God or His sovereignty over creation? And here's what they say, beautiful answer, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God. By which He upholds, as with His hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance but from His fatherly hand." That right there, should be an encouraging statement. So often, the fears in this life are about the unknown and what might happen next, and here's what we must know. God is sovereign over our future. He's sovereign over the present and the past, and He works all things together for our good. God could not work all things together for our good unless He was sovereign over what? how many things? all things. For God to work everything for your good, He'd have to be sovereign over everything, not just a few things, not just half the things, everything. And that should be a great comfort to us as believers that nothing, nothing will enter your life that did not come through God's loving fatherly filter. God always is in control of what comes into our life, whether it be pleasant or difficult times in our life. Look with me here at this paragraph, uh, Ephesians 1 verse 3. This is a, In fact, in Greek, this is one sentence from verses 3 to 14, one sentence in the original language, and it all begins and is all rooted in praising God or blessed be God. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And here's one of those spiritual blessings, verse 4, even as He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, we just, again, if you have Grudem's book, he, he expands on this in much more detail than I can in the next couple minutes. It's a massive subject. But here is what we know. And, and I even as I say this, I already know the kinds of objections that will automatically rise in some minds as you hear this. I, I understand that. I don't have time to address all those right now. I'm just going to sort of say what Scripture teaches on this. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, it is not ultimately owing to the fact that you used your free will better than someone who's an unbeliever. That is not why you're a Christian today. If you're a believer today, it is ultimately owing to a decision that was made not just before you were born, but before the world was made. Before the foundation of the world, God looked into the future and he saw us. He saw our fallenness. He saw our need. He saw our sin. And not just undeservedly, anti deservedly, against what we deserve, the opposite of what we deserve, God chose to set his special saving love on His people. We are called many times in the New Testament, and we should not be embarrassed by these words. We are called the elect of God, the chosen of God, those whom God chose in Christ in eternity past. We did not deserve to be chosen. The question is not, why doesn't God choose everyone? The the question is, why did God choose me? Why would God choose you? Do you know you? Do you know me? Do you know what you and I have done? If you come face to face with the holiness of God and your own sinfulness, like Isaiah when he met God, your response will not be, God, why haven't you been nicer to me? Your response will be like Isaiah, woe is me, I am undone, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips, my eyes have seen the king, I'm going to perish. And instead, God reaches out in kindness to Isaiah and forgives his sin and sends him out on mission. If we truly know ourselves in light of God's holiness… Many of the objections that are automatically raised to the doctrine of predestination and election just vanish, and instead we start asking God, why did You interrupt my life of sin against what I was choosing for myself and give me a desire suddenly to seek You? Where did that desire for Scripture come from in me? It did not originate in my free will. My free will was being used for lots of other things at that time in my life. It was not being used to pursue the Lord. What was it within you that suddenly made your conscience feel a sense of your sin? What was it that made you want to seek the Lord? What was it that made you want to pray for the first time? What was it that made you want to read Scripture and to pursue God? Where were these desires coming from? Where did that transformation come from where you went from death to life, from the, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? What made that happen in your heart? If you really do think that at the ground foundation root cause of the reason why you became a believer is ultimately owing to the fact that you made a good choice. I, I'm not going to mock right now. not going to mock. I understand. A lot of people feel that way. I would challenge you to go back and to read through passages like this one in front of us and to ask, why is it truly, underneath all this, why is it that I do genuinely love the Lord Jesus and have a desire to serve Him? And we have to say, he says here, we were predestined in love. God's motive was love. It was the intermediary. The mediator was Jesus. We were chosen in Christ, not in, our own, in anything we've done. It was in accordance with His purpose and His will, not ultimately my will, ultimately God's will. Romans 9 says, it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And ultimately, the, the the final reason why God has chosen undeservedly to save a countless multitude that no one can number from every tribe and language and people and nation is to the praise of His glorious grace. Just like in the Exodus when God chose the death of the firstborn and the drowning of the Egyptian army, and He chose to undeservedly choose and save the nation of Israel, He did all that for His glory. Was God's glory displayed Now, this is hard for us to say as American Christians. Was God's glory displayed in the ten plagues? Yes. Was God's glory displayed in the death of the firstborn? Yes. Was God's glory displayed in the drowning of the Egyptian army? Yes. Was God's glory displayed in His triumph over Pharaoh and his false gods? Yes. Was God's glory displayed by saving the firstborn of all the Jewish families that had the blood of the Passover lamb over the door? Yes. Was God's glory displayed in parting the Red Sea and bringing His people through? Yes. Was God's glory displayed in the manna and the water in the wilderness, keeping them alive? Yes. God's glory is displayed in saving those undeservedly whom He chooses to save, as He did Israel in the Exodus. And God's glory is displayed, I know it is hard for us to say this. I think this is part of our American Christianity that distorts our view of Scripture. But God's glory, we should not be ashamed, God's glory is displayed when His justice comes down and He pours out His justice on those who have rebelled against Him and deserve His judgment. God's glory is displayed in that as well. And God has had a plan from the beginning of time to glorify all of His attributes, His grace, His mercy, His justice, and His holiness. His wrath and power, His patience and kindness, His fatherly love. God has planned to display all the attributes of His glory like facets of a diamond that you turn to see from every angle, and that has been His plan from all of eternity. And I believe that is the ultimate reason why, at the end of the day, God has chosen undeservedly to save His sheep, His people, and to deservedly allow people in rebellion to experience the justice that they deserve in their sin for rebellion against God. The only thing here that seems unfair, well, you know, you may say that seems unfair, that doesn't seem right, I will say this. When it comes to justice, God's justice is being given to those who perish in their sin. The Egyptians got justice. The Israelites did not get justice per se, they got grace. They got better than what they actually deserve. Now, I'm not quite done yet with the sermon. We're almost done. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 4. How in the world can this be a comforting truth? Well, let me say this. This means that all the suffering in your life, think of Job. Did God give Satan permission to do what He did to Job? Yes, so everything Satan did was under God's sovereign plan. Satan could do no more than God allowed Satan to do. So, suffering in our life, persecution, and evil itself, we must understand that God has a plan that incorporates all of that, which means, how is this comforting? This means that when we go through unexpected suffering in our life, or chronic suffering, or when we go through real persecution, or evil is committed against us, those things are not good in and of themselves. No one is saying that. Those things are horrific. But we must know that God has a plan, and that the things that come into our life, just like the persecution that went against Jesus and the apostles, whatever comes into our life happens according to God's hand and His plan, and is predestined to take place for our good and for His glory how does that create boldness? Well, if God is sovereign over everything, including suffering and your enemies, why are we afraid? If God has a plan, a good and wise plan for all your suffering, all your persecution, all the evil that comes into your life that's done against you, all that happens, if God has a plan for your good in that, We have the ability now to be the most bold and courageous people imaginable because God is in control. He's in control. And that's what the apostles needed to think about as they face persecution, prison, and for some of them soon, death. Okay, now my last point, number four, he's sovereign over sanctification. This does not mean that we get to be lazy. Look with me at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to Your servants to continue to speak Your Word with all boldness, while You stretch out Your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of Your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the Word of God with all boldness. I'm going to read 29 one more time and now, Lord, look upon their threats. Notice there, they aren't primarily praying what I would pray, which is a change in circumstances. Like, Lord, stop the persecution. is not a, not a theme of, this, of the prayer. It's interesting. I don't think it's wrong to pray that persecution stop, but they say almost nothing about it. They just say, look upon it. That's all they say about the persecution. Lord, please look upon it, which means, Lord, do what you think is right. Do what you think is fit. They don't plead for it to stop. They don't plead for it to keep going. They just say, Lord, look on our persecution. Do what you think is fit. Then they say, here's their main request, verse 29, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. God, left to ourselves, we're going to be like Peter on the night of the betrayal. We're all going to be cowards. Lord, please grant to us. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. For me to grow spiritually, the Lord must grant me the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of the flesh, what I can do. It's the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit does within us. Lord, please grant me to be bold. Grant me to be loving. Grant me to be joyful as I go about my life. And the Lord is gracious when we pray to respond to those prayers by blessing us with boldness and courage. So a quick point of application as we close. This is Thanksgiving break. Not maybe all of you, but my guess is many of us will be around family and perhaps extended family this week. Some of you will be around unbelieving, beloved family members, maybe a brother, a sister, a parent, a cousin, an uncle, an aunt, somebody very likely you'll be in contact with in the coming days who is not a believer in Jesus. The goal is not to be over the top necessarily, but the goal is this, pray, and let's be praying for each other, for courage. Pray for courage to, in the right way at the right time, speak a word about our faith, about the Lord, about what He's doing in our life, about how they're doing, a little bit of courage that we could bring up the things of the Lord when we are around perhaps a loved one whom perhaps is not at this moment seeming to be very open to their Christian faith. Let's have that on our minds, and, and, and also 2020 has been an easy year for me at least, sadly, I think, to my shame, to not be as focused on missions as I would like to be. I think I've been so narrowly focused this year because of just how strange of a year it's been, but let us also not forget the nations who need courageous people to go, and for us to help either go ourselves or to help send them. So, let's be thinking about our neighbors, our friends, those in our family, and also about the nations that the Lord would send workers for the fields that are ripe for harvest. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, You are, you are good. Right now, you know every detail of what's happening and are sovereign over all that is happening in the farthest reaches of even the known universe. It boggles our minds to think about how enormous and how grand it all is and to think that You created it effortlessly. As Genesis 1 simply says, "'And He made the stars also.'" God, we know that you are unimaginably powerful and great, and we are weak and helpless. Help us to come to you with our need this week. Just like the disciples, coming a little bit perhaps scared or at least concerned that they might lose their courage, coming to you broken and humble and saying, Lord, left to myself, I can do nothing. And apart from you, I can do no good thing. God, would you work within us the will, to work for Your good pleasure, that You would be at work in our hearts as we go to see family and friends this week that perhaps we do not often see during the year. And, God, help us to love them, help us to be interested in their lives, to ask them questions about how they are doing, but then also, Lord, give us courage at the right moment using Your discernment that You give us. Help us to know when and to give us the courage how to raise up spiritual and eternal issues help our conversations to be edifying, to be useful, help us to love others well and to serve others gladly this week. And God, we pray for fruit. We pray for conversion. We pray for good news. Perhaps we'll even hear some stories in the coming weeks and months of things that have happened amongst families represented in this room. And God, please grant us boldness to continue to speak Your Word without fear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.